All right, Josh Smith here. I'm at my studio, live from Flat Five. Uh, today, my guest is one of my favorite musicians in the world. And whenever anybody asks me, like, oh, who's your favorite improviser? It's always this guy. I've been listening oh, thanks, to him man. my entire life, uh, literally my entire life. The first time I saw you was as a kid in Florida. Um, I don't remember where, either Musicians Exchange or Alligator Alley or something like that, and just was floored. Um, and the fact that I can even call you up and that we're, we're pals and we've played together here and there blows my mind. Um, you've seen him over the years. He's been in incredible bands, toured as a sideman with the biggest names in jazz, had an incredible band called Tribal Tech, and now has an unbelievable solo career. Uh, his new record, People Mover, is incredible. And he's just one of my most favorite musicians in the world, Scott Henderson. Thank you, Josh. Wow. I didn't know I was that good. <laughs> oh, man. Thanks, man. Dude, dude, it's, I mean, you've, I mean, obviously you've been a huge inspiration to me most of my life. And, you know, for the people who don't know your, your work, I want to go back to, to how it started. I've been asking everybody kind of, you know, my parents weren't musicians. So it was just kind of luck and happenstance that they bought me a guitar when I was three years old. It, and life would have been different if that didn't happen. What was your story? Were your parents musicians? Uh, How did the guitar end up in your hands? Well, my dad had an acoustic guitar lying around the house all the time, and he did play a little bit, but not professionally. But he knew how to play some tunes, you know, and he was actually pretty good. He played pretty clean. He had an acoustic guitar, and he'd play these country tunes and sing. And I was like, oh, that's really I, – I dug it, you know. And then – but I think the turning point was when these guys came. We, we, we were lucky to, to be able to afford a pool in, in our backyard. My dad was so happy when he was able to build a pool in the backyard. Right. And the pool guys came over, and they were always listening to the radio. And I heard Led Zeppelin. I mean, that's how old I am. They were playing Led Zeppelin on the radio, even Whole Lot of Love with the whole middle section and everything. So I, I heard Whole Lot of Love, and that was it for me. I said, okay, that's what I want to do. And wow. that, that was the connection between my dad's guitar and the love of music, you know, that got me really into it. That's okay. So that's, that's amazing. So also what, what city is this you're growing up? West Palm beach. That's what I thought, you know, yeah. so I'm from Fort Lauderdale, so we're not from mm -hmm. very far apart mm -hmm. and you know, you needed a pool down there. <laughs> that was, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for so, sure. Okay. So you've got your dad's acoustic guitar and then Zeppelin turns you out. How do you start learning? Like, what's, what's the next move? Do you find a teacher? Are you, are you on your own? What's the next move? I was on my own, and what I started doing immediately is start transcribing solos. And, of course, I didn't know how to write music on paper, so I just started listening to solos and learning them off the record. Like, I learned the solo for Whole Lot of Love. I learned um, some Hendrix things. I learned licks from anybody. And we kind of had a community of neighborhood guitarists, and anytime somebody would learn a new lick, they would show it to me and I would show it to them. And everybody was showing licks to each other. Usually the players were either Jeff Beck, Richie Blackmore, Jimmy Page, Jimi Hendrix. Those were the big four guys that everybody was, oh, wow. was you know, studying and stealing licks from. And somebody would call me on the phone. I got a new Blackmore lick. I got to show it to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's amazing how like communal that and, and and what's amazing is how sustained 
the boom was because you're what maybe one generation after the original the beetle boom right like i guess so yeah on ed sullivan so it's like you didn't rush out and buy the guitar after ed sullivan you're you're the next you know the the next generation down so it's like it was so sustained that it was even then everybody on your street had guitars and you were trading knowledge that's unreal yeah and it was it was a different world than the beatles it was more rock than pop but i was still aware of the beatles and loved loved it from the first time i saw it but but my interest you know the beatles wasn't so much a guitar interest as much as deep purple and led zeppelin and that was all about the guitar you know so we were into that absolutely all right so what what age are you then when you're when you're learning with your friends in the neighborhood i guess you know somewhere around 12 12 13 years old i guess yeah okay and so so when do you get your first electric guitar we're good, a good um, electric i guitar. guess like right i mean even before that happened i wanted a guitar and it was uh, for some reason my dad got this really good deal on this i don't even know the name of the brand but it was some off brand of electric guitar and i played that for a year before i finally got an sg and oh. then i started playing as les pauls and when i started actually becoming a professional musician and playing in nightclubs um you know, I was I was I was raised kind of religious, so I was raised in the Baptist church, and and my first gig was for the choir, but then I I these guys got me a gig at the Candy Bar Strip Club in West Palm Beach, and there were like topless chicks, and I thought that was a lot more fun than playing in the choir, so I did that, and it, it, it was kind of a known brainer, <laughs> like like I was seventeen, I wasn't allowed in the club, but oh, yeah. somehow they got me in. And it was kind of a no-brainer to take that gig over the church choir gig because it was a lot more fun. And we were playing Stones tunes, like mostly oh, Rolling I can't Stones am- tunes. I can't imagine. So. I mean, I, I can relate a little bit to the feeling of, you know, being a kid and in, in, in a club that I, I shouldn't have been in playing. But, man, that feeling of, you know, I'm 17, I'm playing in a titty bar, playing Rolling Stones, <laughs> and you probably got money put in your pocket at the end yeah, of the night. it was amazing, was, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, amazing feeling and and one really you know validating part of the thing is is that my parents really never took my music seriously until i started bringing home money and then they wow. said so there's actually hope there's actually you know you can actually make money doing what he likes to do so mm. i started and then and then when i was able to finally move out of my house and though even though i had roommates i could sustain myself and make a living playing music that was a big deal to my folks you know they didn't think that mm-hmm. could be done you know but i managed to work seven nights a week in the clubs playing top 40 or whatever i was rock and roll right. or whatever i was playing we had a we had a band called the south side boogie band we played a lot of jay giles mm-hmm. <laughs> you know anything that would make girls like dance and get up on the tables and take their shirts off that's the kind of music right. that we played so you know right. it was it was just total party 10 cent beer night um <laughs> it was about yeah, that but, but man the overlooked part of that what you just said was the seven nights a week how much do you think all of those gigs are directly responsible for how fast you progressed and for oh, how much stamina yeah. and vocabulary you 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 develop you know yeah i it's 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 you know when you're in a band and you're constantly having to learn tunes by other people who play all different styles of music because we weren't we weren't just playing rock and roll we had to play some top 40. i always had to listen to the tunes and write the charts for the band and and you know like sort of arrange it and stuff like that and 
it's invaluable because because you learn your ear develops you learn how to hear harmony you learn how to transcribe and I, even though my charts probably weren't technically very correct uh, as far as the way i wrote them you know i could write the chords down and tell everybody hey it's this chord it's that chord and and also trying to learn solos a lot of times i i took pride in learning solos note for note because like sometimes some of those steely dan songs that we were playing the solo you can't play kid charlemagne and not play larry carlton's solo because no, it's a part of the song you know absolutely yeah. so i learned songs by night by night by steely dan and i would play the guitar solo exactly off the record because right. it wasn't the song without that solo or peg wasn't the song without yeah. Jay Graydon solo. Yeah, so yeah. by transcribing a lot of solos, I think I learned a lot. Yeah, it's it's amazing because now all these guys come up and they have so much information available to them, so they grow like knowledge-based much faster. But they skip out on that six nights a week gigs where you're forced to maybe you're the lone soloist in the band and you're playing for four fucking hours. And I mean, that's where all that the vocab and stamina comes from to do that. You know? It is. Yeah. I, actually, I, I have to tell you, man, I played more notes and more solos in the top 40 bands than I do in my band right now. Like yeah, that's, we would yeah. we would get up there and we would start playing cocaine and mm. people would get on the dance floor and, and we would literally play cocaine for an hour and I would solo for like a half an hour of that. Yeah. And people, people are too drunk to care. So right. I probably did more practicing on the bandstand playing those kind of gigs. My solos were way longer than the solos that I play now in my band. <laughs> right. And now people come specifically to hear you solo. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Oh man, that's a, that's amazing. So during that those years, were there, was there any uh, music in your school in high school or anything? Not in high school, but I went to college. Actually, you know where I got kind of a, a real break was that uh, I can't can't remember what year it was. Um, probably seventy seventy three or seventy four. I got a gig with an all black group um, playing nothing but. R&B, James Brown, Cool in the Gang, uh, um, um, The Spinners. A lot of it was a lot of it was singing groups, but a lot of it was real serious funk. Sly Stone, James Brown, and I didn't have a clue about that kind of music because I hadn't been exposed to it. But I stuck in that band for almost four years, and and what that showed me is that once I started getting into that music and discovering how fun it was. Um, to learn that I could love two kinds of music equally, like the, the white rock and roll, you know, and the black R and B. And it, I, that really helped me because that's probably what got me out of being like a one dimensional musician. Cause I probably would have just stuck with rock and roll and only played rock and roll the rest of my life. But that right. got me into tower of power Tower of Power kind of got me into Weather Report. Weather Report got me into this and that. And eventually I started listening to straight ahead jazz. And, you know, yeah. now I listen to everything because I love it all. You know, so it was because of that experience playing with those guys that it kind of knocked me off my little safe point and yeah. got me That's into listening to other stuff. That I mean, that that is crazy because it, it's it's all about the way that you first experienced something. So, like, those guys welcomed you in and opened up this whole new world to you. And it was like, for me, like, jazz was, was something that initially was uh, 
kind of my dad listened to some and I liked it, but learning it, it was initially like I had no interest because the guys that tried to talk to me talked down to me in this way, like, you know, you're just playing blues, you know, that's bullshit. Let me show you this. And they kind of looked down and it wasn't until someone like, you know, friendly kind of showed me, Hey, you're already playing, you know, I'm 12 years old. So whatever, take it with a grain of salt. But someone started showing me like, Hey, you're already kind of doing this. Let me show you what that actually is. You're playing and, and, and in a nice way, like explained it to me. And then it was like, Oh, wait a minute. It's okay. And it was the same when I heard Robin Ford, it was like, at first I didn't get it cause I was a, blues historian and he didn't bend the strings enough for me but then it became clear it was like wait a minute he respects blues equally as much as i do or more he knows his history it's okay to play all this stuff you're hearing yeah you don't lose the rest of you you know yeah yeah i had the same thing happen to me i was playing stuff from getting it off the records but i had no idea what i was playing so after i uh left that band i decided to go to college and I couldn't afford to go to college like and get a degree, but I just took some music classes in college. And I learned kind of that's when I learned I sort of put the theory thing in the guitar together and go, oh, so this stuff that I'm playing, that's this scale or that's that scale. And, right. you know, later after that, I moved to California and went to GIT and there were instructors there like Diorio and Pat Martino and and yeah. all these, you know, great guitar players that that really kind of were it was more fretboard oriented so they could actually show me okay well this scale this is how you finger this scale and then it all started to come together the 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 realization that all that music and all that stuff that i'd be playing exists on the same instrument you know so you have to like you have to like sort of look at it and it with such an amount of plurality you know that yeah that, that one thing works here works a different way in another style of music so i i feel like i've been really lucky because i get to play all these styles of music that that you know i love the blues i love funk i love rock and roll i love jazz and and i get to play whatever i want i don't have some producer standing over yeah. me and going hey you you know there's a jazz tune on your rock album you can't do that <laughs> <laughs> True enough. I mean, you know, and, and but I mean, that's part of what's had you arrive at like your voice, you know, your your sound on the instrument. What makes you sound like you? It's the, that mix of all those experiences and all those influences. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious. You said so Tower of Power led to Weather Report and then you got into straight ahead jazz. What was the first straight ahead thing that just kind of really turned you out and you you loved it? I probably heard. um one of them was Miles Davis, uh, Nefertiti, you know, the band yeah, yeah. with Wayne Shorter and Herbie yeah, Hancock. Yeah. I really loved that band because to be honest, I, I never came from the bebop world of Charlie Parker. I kind of missed that. And not that I don't appreciate it, but it wasn't the thing that got me into jazz. Like a lot of guys come from that, you know, 40s bebop thing. You know, I kind of I know it's an important part of jazz, but it wasn't the part of jazz that really appealed to me. I, I got into more, to me, that music sounds like um, music that dogs listen to at Disneyland. You know, that's what it sounds like to me. Like dig, it's too Dixieland for me. I right? hear what you're saying. So, yeah. so, so, so even though I really appreciate how great bird is, I mean, bird was amazing, but the style is not, 
is doesn't appeal to me as much as like Wayne Shorter in the Miles Davis group because that music had a lot more space and it was mysterious sounding. It wasn't mm-hmm. so oh you know it wasn't that it was something a lot more progressive and spatial and mysterious and cool. You know, so I really dug Miles Davis. He was a big, big influence on me. His his bands that he put together after the bebop era. Um, mm-hmm. And then, of course, like Wayne Shorter's solo albums. I really loved those. And yeah. and Cannonball Adderley, because he's so steeped in the blues. And that's when I started listening to Joe. You know, Joe Zolina was playing mm-hmm. Fender Rhodes yeah. behind Cannonball Adderley. And that music was jazz, but at the same time, it was R&B. It was funky. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and that appealed to me a lot. So I see that the correlation between Tower of Power and Cannonball Adderley is almost the same music, you know, except maybe they yeah. took longer solos in Cannonball Adderley, you know, long, big, long <laughs> saxophone solos. But it's the same kind of vibe, you know, and, yeah. and that, that really appealed to me a lot. Well, and a lot of that's got to be because you came at it from a rock guy first, you know, so I can yeah. understand getting hooked. Yeah more immediately by later miles you know what i mean yeah yeah it makes more sense yeah Mm -hmm. absolutely because it was hard for me to go back and listen to some of the bebop stuff because it sounded to me like old people music you (laughs) know it sounded like music that they listened to in the 40s and danced to you know Mm -hmm. so in in a way it was the top 40 of their generation you know it's weird for me coming from listening to bb and albert king and 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 t-bone walker when i first heard charlie parker it was to me it was more like oh it's an extension of 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 blues a little bit more and i could relate more to that than i could to when i first heard giant steps or when i first heard you know more more modal jazz or whatever more 70 stuff so i was the opposite like my progression was the the opposite way yeah you know what i i was also a big fan of the prog rock band so that's why miles davis the the weirdness and the and the mysteriousness of that music and the uh, kind of oblique chord changes where <laughs> you know it wasn't two five ones all the time it was like okay yeah. any chord can go in any chord so it was way more like Debussy and Ravel and Stravinsky and yeah, and yeah. that kind of stuff and that directly relates to one of my favorite bands Gentle Giant because I was a oh, huge yeah. Gentle Giant fan and that music I'm, I've always been a big composition fan you know like it's not just the soloing that gets me it's the tunes so when i listen to gentle giant and heard all that amazing writing and then i hear the same kind of not necessarily the same style but the same kind of harmonic weirdness from from miles and 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 realize that it doesn't have to be a two five to be jazz it can be it can be whatever it is it can be crazy you know and yeah, now like one of my favorite albums is Atlantis, Wayne Shorter, you know, that mm-hmm. that beautiful writing, you know, and that's that's probably what's in, inspired me the most is writing like that where harmonically it can go anywhere. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy that kind of stuff. Wow. All right. So you so you go to some some college classes, you go to GIT. Um, when does like go all of a sudden you start getting these gigs going out on the road with, with the heroes, you know, when does that start happening? Um, I, I guess cause I met Jeff Berlin. He was one of the teachers at MI and I used to jam with him all the time. And Joe pass actually like so, me and yeah. Joe pass and Jeff Berlin used to play standards together every day at school. 
In yeah. fact, I can't. I don't think people realize now that go to MI how jazz GIT was back. Oh then. yeah, you know, it was. Yeah. It was a jazz school. I mean, that's why yeah. people went there. So yeah. you imagine all these legends teaching there. You know, it was incredible. To and of course, you know, Joe Pass. He was a grisly guy. He was like really mean, and he would tell you like what you're doing wrong. And he, he I think he actually enjoyed telling you in the meanest way possible what you're doing <laughs> wrong. But, uh, but yeah, he'd say, "Why the fuck you play that?" Yeah. <laughs> and, Holy but, cow! You know, it was fun, and I remember uh, a funny thing that he said about me when he was interviewed for the LA times, they asked him like, are there any up and coming guitar players that you like? And he says, well, there's this guy, Scott Henderson. That's pretty good. You know, he plays that kind of music where you don't know, know what the hell the melody is. <laughs> and I was oh like, my God. thanks Joe. It's such a <laughs> I would have that kind that quote on the front of my press kit for the yeah, rest of my life. I know. Joe it's Pass great. says, I play music that doesn't, you yeah. don't know what the melody. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's Joe is, was amazing. And I used to teach his son. I used to go over to his house and teach his son because his son wanted to learn fusion, you know, uh -huh. and Joe didn't want to teach him that. And I remember a couple of times I'd go over there and, and, and Joe would be there in his bathrobe watching TV. And I'd say, Hey, I'm done with the lesson, Joe, you want to play? And he just look at me and go, I've been playing for 60 years. I want to watch TV. <laughs> Unreal. Unreal. <laughs> he was a, he was a funny cat, man. Hilarious. So when you got there, Jeff Berlin was already teaching there. Yeah, he was teaching there and he had a band and he hired me for his band. And that's when I did the very first record I ever played on was champion this record that jeff berlin did right. and uh jean-luc ponty heard that heard me play on that record and through jeff i met alan holdsworth mm -hmm. and alan holdsworth was playing with jean-luc and he recommended me for the gig when he quit so i didn't even have to audition for jean-luc ponty jean just hired me on alan's word and yeah. and i played in that band and from there i went to play with chick korea which was a huge mistake but you know whatever it was you know live and learn right. I, I remember i i told jean-luc ponty that i was going to leave uh his band and i got an an opportunity to play with chick korea and jean-luc ponty looked really surprised and he looked at me and he just said you and i thought that meant that he didn't think i was good enough musically so I kind of took it as an insult and he looked at me directly. And he knew that that's what I thought. And he said, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm not talking about music. And I go, well, then what the hell are you talking about? And he said, you'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I didn't last too long in that band. But right. then after that, I got the offer to play with Zawinul. And that was a lot more fun. I did that gig for about four years. That was a blast. Had you met Zawinul ever up until before that point? Yeah, once. And okay. uh, um, one time he came, the, the first time he came to, to hear me, but he didn't come to hear me. He came to hear Jeff Berlin as a possible replacement when Jocko left. Right. But I was playing with Joe's band. And I mean, with Jeff's band and Joe, and Joe heard me and, and I guess he liked my playing because later he hired me. He remembered that night when he was after weather report broke up and he said, yeah, there was this kid playing with, with, with Jeff, maybe I'll call him. And I went over to his house and played and we had a, we had a fun time and told me he was putting this band together called Zawinul Syndicate. And 
you know, and I, I was in that band for a while. Did you ever see uh, Zalinal in South Florida, like back in the Jocko days? I know I did. I did. I saw him play one time, but it wasn't with Weatherport. But I, I did hear Jocko. There was a really cool club. You know, the Musicians Exchange. Yeah, that's my. And that I, was literally. It's responsible for me that place. Yeah. So, so I went down there to hear, um, to hear Othello's band with yeah, Randy Burnson. For people yeah. who don't know, yeah. Yeah, yeah great pan player. And I and, and um I heard him, and it was uh, Ray. I forget the name of the bass player. Great bass player, um, on bass. I mean, he was a, a kind of a protege of Jocko, Randy Burnson on guitar. Yeah. Um, good musicians, really good musicians. And Jocko would come in and sit in with them sometimes, and that's mm. when he could really play. Like when he was before yeah. he got all messed up. Unfortunately. By the time I met Jocko in California, he was already gone. Like he was already. So I never got to play with him or really know the real Jocko. By the time I got an opportunity to play with him or meet him on a professional level, you know, like as one of his peers, he, he, man, he was gone, way gone by then. Yeah. 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 Man, there were, there was an amazing scene down there at the time of musicians. And actually, did you see Ira Sullivan passed away yesterday? he did yeah. oh my god that's so sad man he was a legend i mean i used to yeah. go hear him play with joe diorio and one of the cool things about the gig at the airport is, um, I used to see him at the airport wow <laughs> i used to go see him at the unitarian church um there was a church and it would be steve bagby on drums and Joe DiOrio on guitar and Iris Sullivan on sax, trumpet, and all the other mini instruments that he played. Yep. And the cool thing is there wasn't a bass player, so Joe was just the harmony, and Joe just supplied the bass notes and the chords. And it was, a, it was amazing to hear those guys, especially being young. And I have to say, I didn't really understand jazz as much as I would have liked to and heard them. I think I would have gotten more out of the concert if I knew more about the music back then. But just mm-hmm. to see him, it was really inspiring. It was incredible. Yeah. It's sad yeah, about was... Ira, man. What a, what a talent, man. That guy played everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's funny, growing up down there, he was one of those, like, I remember seeing him as a kid. I remember Randy Burnson, clearly seeing Randy Burnson as a kid. Um, Othello, seeing him at the Musicians Exchange. Uh, I never saw Jocko. I was too young for that. But what was crazy was every musician I met that I started gigging with all these adults, everyone had their Jocko story. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I've got a few myself. I've got a bunch of those, man. I mean, I remember one night with Chick Corea, we were playing at the pier in New York, and we were playing one of the softer tunes, and we heard all this noise in back of us but we didn't know what it was turns out after the show we found out that Jocko had tried to climb on the stage um and he didn't have a I guess he was just going to walk over to Patitucci and grab his bass out of his hand and start wanking on it you know right and and then after the the show he was passed out under the food table and what was so weird is like his black feet were sticking out from under the table and all the New York guys were just stepping over his feet to get their food. And all the guys from LA were going, Oh my God, call the ambulance. Jocko's under the table. And the New York guys were just not, it was nothing to them. They were just stepping over him. Like it was just wow. like an everyday occurrence to them. It was, that's and that's crazy. the night that Willis met Jocko for the first time. 
Really? And talk about weird. Like, because wow, Willis was playing in Wayne Shorter's band who was opening for us. And wow. so Willis met like one of his big heroes for the first time. And of course, Jocko was like, it's like Willis meeting a homeless guy. Yeah. And yeah. it was so weird to see Willis sitting on the couch with Jocko and Jocko being that like, like a street urchin. And, yeah. and this is like Willis's hero. It was weird, man. Surreal. Oh, man, that's crazy. But I did get to see that word of mouth big band a couple times. Oh, really? And they were killing. I mean, they were so great. I got to hear them at Dorothy, Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in L.A. Was Brecker on the gig? Yes. Everybody, no, Mincer was on the gig. Okay. And okay. everybody was, it was just one of those great gigs where Jocko played his ass off. And that's the last time I ever heard him really sound like Jocko. Because by the time I, I, I heard him next time which was a few years later he had kind of gone i gotta give you a tape i've got that i got from like the musicians exchange closet when i was a kid but it's jocko and buddy miles at the musicians exchange playing them changes for 60 minutes <laughs> that's been great because yeah. jocko had enough vocabulary he could probably play them changes for 60 minutes and not run out of shit to play <laughs> yeah, it, it, i mean it's rough and then it's great and then it's rough yeah. and then it's great it's right. you know it's it's amazing yeah yeah all right yeah. so so you tour with all those legends and you've kind of now you've, you've found like your foothold when do you start you know composing and when does the when does you know your your tunes start to become the, well, the focus and when do you start I'd, the band i've been composing since florida so i had a, right, a bunch right. of tunes and in about around uh let's see it was around 80 82 or 83 when i was out in la playing with i was either playing with chick or joe at the time i think i was playing with chick i met willis and i met uh i but but it wasn't willis actually at first it was roscoe beck you know roscoe right yeah absolutely yeah roscoe beck will bulware um um uh it was Mike Baker on drums. We started playing at Dante's. Remember Dante's? Yeah. It was a cool club in North Hollywood. Now a parking lot, Pontiac dealership. But um, we started playing there and playing original music. And that's what turned into Tribal Tech eventually. Mm -hmm. And uh, we did our first album. And then uh, eventually Tribal Tech became more known as being me and Willis and, and Covington and Kinsey. And we right. did most of our records in that lineup and we did about at least four or five records before we could start touring because you know kind of have to build up a following and stuff finally we got an, an offer to go to europe and do some gigs and that's when i had to leave joe's band because i couldn't do both i couldn't mm. tour with both bands so i didn't really want to leave joe's band i was having a good time but but it was sort of like i have to do that or i, I have to either start being a band leader or this is never going to happen so Right. We, we started touring as tribal tech and, and eventually as the years went by, we started getting a following and we started touring and that's how it all started happening. How old were you when the first tribal tech record came out? It was, I'm not good with that kind of stuff. It was 85. So, and I'm 66. So you guys will have to do the math because I, <laughs> I, I, I'm no good at math. <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Oh man. Well, I mean, <sighs> Was that like exciting? Was it scary to kind of leave the comforts of like a probably a decent paying gigs and things like that and start doing yeah. your own thing full time? 
it was a definitely a financial step down. I can tell you that. Right. You know, band leaders are always broke. So, so at least at first. And, and, and so, you know, we were paying the guys and if we made anything great, if we didn't, we did it because it was our band and stuff. But eventually, you know, the Europe and the, when we, when you get out of the United States, the money gets better. So the Europe gigs started paying pretty well. South America, Asia was paying pretty well. So we were able to, you know, to do it. And, and, and of course there really is nothing like, playing your own music for people and having just the realization that these people actually listen to your record and they're coming to hear you play those songs. That's so gratifying. Yeah. And it's so, I mean, I can't I even describe the level of thankfulness to people who, who actually, you know, buy your stuff. You, you put out a record and they actually spend their money on it. And then they come to hear you play that music because they like it that's the most gratifying thing in the whole world. So I'm just yep. lucky to be able to do that. And I'm not saying that I didn't put in the work to be able to do it, but it's still, man, it's luck. It's just being at the right place at the right time and things coming into place and just, you know, rolling that ball up the hill forever and just trying, <laughs> trying to gain momentum. It takes a long time, man. That's oh. The fact that a large enough group of people have any interest in what I do or, or you do or whatever, that it, it, it's like sustains your life is it fucking unbelievable, really. I mean, it it's, is. it's unreal. It is. Yeah. It really is. Because, because those guys that I've always looked up to that do that, it's like I'm thinking, wow, I'm doing what my heroes did. I've always been a real big fan I mean, you know, we argue this about sometimes on the podcast because Bruce talks a lot about the great players. And mm -hmm. I'm sort of like, yeah, but, you know, like there's only about 20 million great players out there. They're all great. Who isn't great that we rave right. about? I'm more of like I'm I'm more like blown away by the by the writers, by the guys, by the guys like Pat Metheny, John Schofield, John McLaughlin. Uh, um, the people that and bands like Zeppelin and mm. and and Gentle Giant who have this amazing amazing cal catalog of original music, that's what just blows me away. Like, how can this guy be Wayne Shorter's Joe Zawinul Jocko? How can these guys be such great players and great composers too? That's that's yeah. what's always just floored me. So that's who I always wanted to be like a guy that wrote tunes and went out and played his tunes because a lot of people, they don't come just to hear you play. They come mm. to hear the songs that they like. And yeah, that's a thing too. That's there's a, that's a whole other thing. It's amazing. Like yeah. the reason people went to hear the Beatles because they loved those songs. Absolutely. They weren't there to hear extended solos. They were there because they yeah. loved that music. They loved the songs. And I'm a yeah. songs guy. I'm a, I'm a jazz musician, yeah. But I don't. I'm not a standards guy. I never really wanted yeah. to, 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 to make a living playing Stella by Starlight. Uh, right. Because someone else wrote that. I, I want to yeah. make it on music that I, that I create. And, and that's why this is such an amazing experience because I realize that people are not just coming to the gigs to hear me play, but they're hearing. They want to hear these songs that they like. And that, yeah. that's amazing to me. That's like that, really gratifying. Absolutely. All right. Let's, uh, let's get into the 10 questions. Okay. 
<laughs> okay, I'm scared. <laughs> no, no, no. They're they're not hard. <laughs> uh, number one, man. When you started first learning things, was there something that when you figured it out and got it under your fingers, it was like so so you were proud of yourself so much that it set the hook, and you were no, there was like that was the moment. There's no turning back. Like yeah. I remember learning BB King intro to a slow blues and thinking. It'll never get any better than this. I'm good, you know? Yeah, that was a whole lot of love for me. Yeah. That, okay. was, the, that was the whole lot of love solo. I got my guitar. Uh. Yeah. That, was, that was it for me, you know? Like, when I learned that, I was like, wow, I'm a professional guitar player. Like, I, I, I can sound like that. Like, to put, your, put, to put yourself in the shoes of somebody that can do that, like, on their own, yeah. I was saying, well, if he, I can do it. So that means that, that someday I'll be able to make that kind of shit up. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you're right. Yeah. 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 Well, that, that was the second question, uh, which was, what's the first solo you ever learned note for note? Was that the first one? Yeah, that was the first one. That was yeah, a big deal for me. That's amazing, man. And you'll never forget it. You could be 90 years old and you'll be yeah. able to sing that solo note for note or play it. Yeah, yeah and I learned uh, then, then, then after that, it was Richie Blackmore. Yeah, it was that. You know, yeah. so I've learned so many, if not the whole solo, my favorite parts of everybody's solo from from charlie parker to to jimmy page and yeah. that's what gives you the you know the the inspiration and vocabulary i guess that goes on for the rest of your life absolutely absolutely man. all right number three what's the first thing you play when you pick up a guitar do your hands just go somewhere automatically is there just a a, a thing that you can't even help it like an automatic response well there's always just the just, just playing some just playing blues you know getting vibrato but lately i've been working on stuff like i'll just take a i don't know um geez i wouldn't even know where to start just to take a simple progression maybe i'll go there maybe i'll go there here maybe here i'm just hearing things change that to minor maybe here go here change that to that key that might be might, that might go here i don't know i'm just messing around with chords so when you're doing that I, i'm curious uh you look at the fretboard and i wonder how, how much is visual and how much is is just being led by your ear and your brain it's both because yeah. I'm hearing things, but sometimes I'm not sure if I'm going to put my fingers in the right place. So I look at the net, you know, yeah. a, a lot of times when I play, I'm, I'm conscious not to look at the neck because I don't want to be led around by my eyes. I want to be led around by my ears. Right. So, right. so I get into the, especially when I'm playing with other people, because I'm one of those guys who really likes my 
playing to be conversational with the with the band. So if I look at the guitar, sometimes it's tempting to play what I know rather than to play what I hear. Ah, and 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 a lot of times, I think John McLaughlin said this really well one time. Sometimes you have to forget who you are and what you are, and let the music come through you. So you want to forget about all the stuff that you've learned and all the stuff that you've practiced. And because your goal isn't to play that at the gig, um, only if it comes out in a completely organic way. But, mm. you know, there's no reason to play 10 notes if, the, if, if all you're hearing is one. So, well, so yeah. you know, like, so, so sometimes if I look at my guitar, I'm tempted to go into the area of my brain that I was in when I was at home practicing. So if I don't look at the guitar, I'm, I'm paying more attention to what's going on around me musically. And I'm paying more attention to what fits in that moment. And I sort of like look at it like a quarterback. Like you, you, you practice and you go to all those practices. But when you're in that moment and you've got this guy coming at you from this angle and another guy coming at you from this angle, you got to make a decision where to throw the ball. That's the moment that it's a moment that's completely original and, and um, yep. unique. And you've got to be in that moment, not in the, in the headspace you were when you were at practice. You've got to live for that moment. As an know? improviser, that's literally what we exist for and exactly. live for. And yeah. it's been taken away from us right now. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid virus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like the quarterback analogy because that's 100% right. I, was I had a lesson the other day with a kid. And he was asking me what I'm, you know, it's always, what are you thinking about then when you're soldering right there? And it's literally, I'm not thinking about anything I told him. It's like yeah. when you learn to drive and then you, you actually know how to drive, you're not thinking about, oh, I better get my signal on right now and I've got a right turn coming up ahead. No, you're just fucking driving, you know? Yeah. It's like. Right. Yeah, I always yeah, equate yeah. it to language. It's like you're speaking, you're telling a story. You're not thinking about nouns and pronouns and adjectives and yeah. the technical <laughs> aspects yeah. of speech. You're just telling your story. And yeah. that's why we learn all this stuff so that we can forget about it when we play yeah. And it yeah. switches over from the left brain to the right brain, and you just yeah. fly it. You're, it's the force, you know what I mean? Like, you let the <laughs> yep. force take it over, is. and yep. that's Absolutely. what it is. Yeah. Ugh. All right. Number four. Do you have any anything that like lives inside you, your brain, as a narrative, musically? So for me, unfortunately, <laughs> it's a swinging kind of charlie parker-ish non-stop single note melody that goes 24 <laughs> hours a day i hear but it never it's always in b flat and i can't yeah. sometimes i can't go to bed without wrapping it up you know what i mean yeah do you have does anything that just like runs like that for you all the time yeah yeah i have to say it's because i listen to it so much man i'm such a big tower of power freak yeah. It's 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 somewhere I live somewhere in between Tower Power and Led Zeppelin. I don't know how I don't know how the hell that works, but it's I'm always hearing soul vaccination. I'm always hearing that, but I'm also hearing Led Zeppelin. I'm always hearing like Heartbreaker. <laughs> yeah. know? It's like always with me all the time. You can have worse things just constantly yeah. running through are there's head. few gentle giant tunes that are always rambling around in my head all the time that i'm always thinking yeah. about yeah wow. they're just there 
Man, is Soul Vaccination your favorite T.O.P. song? I love that. I love what is hip. I love I love so much of their their music and you know what they did. Uh, it was it was just so cool. Dave yeah. Garibaldi, man, I love the kind of drumming where I don't even consider uh, when the drummer plays two and four on the snare. That's not funk to me. That's not <laughs> funk. You know, I I like the more syncopated style of funk. Like to me. The funkiest tune ever is In Time by Sly Stone. Yes, and when I listen to that tune, it just blows me away how funky it is and how uh, angular the drums are. He's not playing two and four on the snare drum. Far from oh, yeah. it. He's all over the place. You know? Yeah, it's like listening uh, to Cold Sweat. Yeah, when the, when yeah. the change happened to Cold Sweat, it was exactly. like, oh, wait a minute, something special. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, that's cool. T.O.P. all the time. Nice. <laughs> man, you know that ballad as surely as I stand here? I was learning that the uh -huh. other day. And just, yeah, oh, beautiful. I never learned that song. Unbelievable song. Yeah. I learned Three Views of a Secret a couple weeks ago, and I learned really? to play it as a solo guitar piece, and I just, I'm just having so much fun playing that tune. There's so much harmony in that tune that's not written in the chart. Right, you know, because they probably have to write a, a, a ten-page chart to get all that harmony in there. But there's variations of the harmony that it's that's written in the chart, and I love those variations are amazing. Yeah, unreal band. All right, uh, number five. When did you feel like you know on that process you you started to find your voice on the instrument? Was there a moment when like? you know you you fell into something or maybe someone even pointed out to you like dude that thing you're doing is really cool and i never heard that but was there a moment that clicked and you thought i should go further down this path because I'm, I'm starting to sound like me i don't know how to answer that because i don't i'm not aware of a time that um that it happened and because i have so many influences in my playing that i think there was probably a time where i was sounding too much like a number of guys because yeah. i was really influenced by schofield so for a while he was probably the actually the first jazz guitar player that i yeah. really really liked a lot because he was playing with kind of a rock tone oh, like yeah, yeah. i remember the the uh, in fact i saw him in miami i saw the billy cobham george duke band oh wow and and i saw him in in miami and i was really impressed with schofield because he was playing these lines but with a kind of cool, it was a Les Paul Jr. he was playing. Mm -hmm. So I got really involved in him maybe too much, and I, I had to just stop listening to him because I, th I thought I'm starting to sound too much like this guy. Or Richie Blackmore. I was sounding so much like Richie Blackmore. As a kid, people thought I was, you know, a clone of Richie Blackmore. And Jeff Beck, too. And, and Albert King, I listened to so much that every time I play blues – I can't help but play what I'm hearing that he plays, yeah. you know? So there's so many influences there that I don't know if I do have my own voice. Um, oh, you definitely I, do. <laughs> I, I, I don't know, but it, if it ever happened, I don't know how it happened because I've listened to so many guys that, that, well, um, that have influenced. Was, it, was there heavily. a moment like when you started doing your own gigs and your own tunes, when at least that got shut off and you weren't thinking about any of those things when you were playing? I have a feeling that without my knowledge, probably writing had a lot to do with it because when you, when you're a pro musician, you always play for the tune. Yeah. So if I wrote a tune that needed this, I played for that. 
And maybe that's what got me away from thinking I had to be this guy or that guy. I had to be the guy for this tune and I wrote it. So I must be the guy that has to play it. And maybe that had something to do with, with, with finding who I was. Maybe it came through the, through the, through the music rather than just from guitar playing. Oh, cause dude, you have an incredibly uh, personal voice. I mean, I can tell, in two notes, you know, that's Scott Henderson. Well, thanks. Know, that's always, a big compliment, man. It's a huge Absolutely. compliment. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, I think everybody can. I mean, and well, obviously you know, that's, yeah. you can hear influences in everybody's playing. When I hear Jeff Beck, I hear Les Paul because oh, yeah. Les Paul was a huge influence on Les, Jeff Beck. And, and I'm not saying anything bad because I love Jeff Beck, but he's not as original as people think he is. If you haven't heard Les Paul, yeah. When I when I walked into a music store in, in, in Florida one time and heard a Les Paul album for the first time in my life, I thought Jeff Beck had a new album out. <laughs> and I was like, what's this Jeff Beck record that just came out? And it was Les yeah. Paul. And I was going, holy shit. So, you know, you can take Tommy Emmanuel and cite Chet Atkins. You know, you oh, can, yeah. and you can take Michael Brecker and hear all the Coltrane that that he transcribed and then people always build their own vocabularies on top of what they've learned from other people and that that's what gives them their voice i think absolutely absolutely all right so yeah your voice was was kind of spurred along by your composition and the need to 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 find you know your role in your own tunes i guess i guess so yeah all right this is a, a interesting one what's your biggest weakness on the guitar Mine oh, is uh, acoustic guitar, you yeah. know, being pretty. Like, I, I, I struggle in those scenarios, you know. What's, what's yours? Well, that's what I'm working on, actually, in this time of the pandemic. Because, um, and we were talking about this a little before, is that everything that I've done on the guitar since I was young has always been based on what's going on around me it's like i want to learn this lick because i want to learn it before he does and so i can show it to him and and it's a competition or i need to practice these tunes because i've got a gig coming up so uh or i need to sit around and write because if i don't write i won't have a record so instead of practicing instead of the countless hours that it takes to write an album i'm not practicing so Everything is so career oriented that what I've missed is those guys like Ted Green who have the complete opposite approach. They don't want a career. They don't care about being famous. They just want to sit around at their house and become amazing guitar players. And quarterly, they want to be able to experiment with chords and stuff. And, and, And that was my weakness. And that is my weakness. And that's why this whole time, ever since March, I've been sitting around at home, just working with chords and studying voicings and, and, and trying to be more of a solo guitarist, even though I don't plan on, I'm not, it's like, I'm not trying to polish it. Like I'm going to go start playing solo gigs. It's right, you're just, not working on your solo guitar album. No, no, no. I'm not working on a solo guitar, uh, you know, shtick that I can yeah. go out and play. I'm just working on ear training. Like, I want to be able to hear harmony and play it on the guitar without having to think so much about it. I just want it to come more naturally. So it's basically just a big ear training lesson for me. Yeah. Like, if I'm here... 
what do I hear coming next? Well, I, I hear this, but then I hear this coming down to here. And I hear this. Right? Or maybe this. Um, that was actually a shitty thing. <laughs> Whatever. If I, I might hear this, but I might hear it going to this. And I might hear, and, and now I hear this going to this and to this. I, I heard that like, nor it's yeah. like I, my guitar is completely out of tune, but whatever. I want to be able to, to be able to play what I hear chordally harmonically. And I wasn't very good at that. And I can have to say, honestly, after this pandemic, I've become better at it. It's helped that's, me to, you know, to, to help me hear stuff, you know, cause I've practiced on it every day and I'm hearing stuff that I never heard before. So I'm Man, glad. It's amazing how the yeah the career gets in the way of uh, yeah. you know and life on of the shedding and just working on the yeah. things you, you want to work on. It's funny I interviewed Mark Goldenberg the other day and he spent a lot of time with Ted Green and he told a, a little Ted Green story about being at a Christmas party at Making Music here Joey Brasler's old mm -hmm. store where that he ran and that Ted was playing Christmas music for the party and it was a room full of LA guitar players there attending the party. And when Ted started playing, everybody stopped talking to look at Ted and be like, holy shit, you know. And Ted, within 40 seconds of everybody stopped talking and watching, stopped playing and said, please don't look at me. Like, I, I can't play if you guys are looking and listening. You know, and he, he, right. he so didn't want to be playing gigs. It was right. like crazy. Yeah. No, it's, and, and it's a thing because, because, you know, when you change your this is a weird boy. This is opens up a can of worms. But when you change your perspective from being a musician to be a performer, your whole thing changes. You become a different guy. I don't like to perform. I like to participate in music and just have people around, you know, because when I think I'm performing, I get nervous. Then I'm going to, and when I get nervous, I'm not going to play well. So, right. so, I don't want to think about the fact that I'm trying to, to do some kind of performance like a classical musician. I just want to be playing and having fun and have people enjoying listening to that. So, yeah. but if I start looking at myself as a performer, then here comes the judge, jury and executioner <laughs> hating every single thing that goes down. And I don't have the confidence to like, say, play motifically. Cause you know, if you want to play motifically, you have to like what you play. Yeah. And sometimes if I'm a performer and I think that I'm performing, I don't like anything I play because <laughs> I feel like I'm judging it as soon as I play it. So well, it's I especially as a guitar player, we we end this way. I don't think any other instrument deals with the fandom that we deal with yeah. as a guitar player. Yeah. So it's man, what a trap. You look out at that room full of fucking guitar players and the first inclination is give them what they want. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And what a trap. It's such a trap. <laughs> it is because, because there, there, there is a certain amount of guys out there who are listening to you who are expecting chops yeah. and they're expecting to be wowed. Right. And, and those are the guys I don't want to play for. I just want to play music, you know, so that might be, be playing all whole notes for a while. It, it, it depends <laughs> on what I'm hearing, you know, and I don't want to have to, play like I have to impress anybody because that then you go down a really bad road where and and when you start having to um when you think about comparing yourself with yourself night after night on the road because you're not the same person you were last night 
You know, I mean, how many times have you had a great night on stage and you try to duplicate all the things you did the day before so you can have another one? Yeah. And, yeah. and the you worst can't. Is when you, that's because, it. It's the trying to duplicate. Right. If you just let it happen, yeah. you're fine. But if you go, oh, I was on it last night. I'm going to do the same thing. <laughs> it always goes to a disaster. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it never works that way. Yeah. So I think, I think there's a, I think there's a lot to be said for studying the psychology of music and making it an important study in your life. Because if you're going to be a pro, then you have to learn how to approach it like a pro does. And professionals, when they go to work, they just go to work. They don't, yeah. you know, they don't try to, uh, what would be the word would be to have un realistic expectations of themselves yeah. yeah and that's where you get into trouble when you start having unrealistic expe expectations of yourself you get yourself into trouble because you're never satisfied yeah and and, and, and um it's, you know that's being, not good. being unsatisfied can sometimes be a good motivator but sometimes it's completely irrational and we all have those friends yeah. who at the yeah. end of the gig you thought they were burning and they say i sounded like shit tonight well that, you know, i'm we usually all... one of those guys but i yeah. you know I, i'm usually the one that comes off stage going i sound like shit but it doesn't stop me from trying you know even harder the next time yeah. but the thing is though it doesn't really matter if it's it's not who you are when you come off stage if you come off stage thinking oh i sound like shit i really need to work harder that's fine that can be a positive thing but it's you've got it's when you're on stage you can't be that person no, when you you're on that stage, attitude on stage, the show's yeah, over you're, before it starts. You're screwed. Yeah, you're screwed yeah. from note one. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a certain amount of swagger, man. I've seen yeah. you play. I mean, I know you, man. You go up on stage, and you're a confident guy when you play. You really I try are. I to be. I think well, you, you are, I though. Should. You are. Yeah. You've got a swagger, man. You're like, you man. go up on stage, and you go, hey, man, I am, am going to play my ass off, and, and you do. And, well, I and, try, um, man, like you said, I, I, so I don't have the vocabulary that you have, but I try to make connects. For me, it's, it's weird. Since I was a kid, I wanted to mean everything I played. So it was like when I, I, I catch myself sometimes when I'm playing superfluous bullshit. It's like I, I mm -hmm. just want to mean it. It could be a lot of notes. It could be whatever. <laughs> Excuse me, but I, I, I have a, this real problem with – did I mean that or didn't I mean, I mean it? And I kind of evaluate myself. That's a problem at the end of the night. Like I was, I was jiving that whole night. Like I was in my head and trying to impress myself or did I mean it, you know? And that's a problem that's, for me. That is, um, that is a problem for everybody. And that's why John McLaughlin said what he said, where you have to forget about yourself, lose the ego and let the music just come through you. Because yeah. then you're not thinking about anything like, impressing anybody especially yourself yeah yeah. because trying to impress you're, yourself is just as bad as trying to impress somebody else i'm curious when you're on the road and you're playing up a string of dates in a row we all have like there's that magic number where shit just locks in and you're like you can do no wrong that feeling mm -hmm, you know sure does it ever get too far past that because i've noticed that lately where once i get in that groove there'll be a couple gigs in a row where you could do no wrong and then that next one it's like I know I could do no wrong, and I just play too much because I can pull it off. You know yeah. what I mean? Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, the thing is, the thing that I notice about, and I, and I never started noticing this, of course, until I started touring, because if you don't have anything to compare it to, but 
man, when you go on the road with the same people and they hear you play every night and they, and you know that they're hearing you and you know that they're good musicians. So they know when you're having a bad night or a good night, what I've discovered is the thing about having a good night is being different, just being different. That's all you have to do to have a good night is just to try to play something that you didn't play the night before, just to be creative because being creative makes up for millions of mistakes. I'd rather make mistakes all night and come away thinking that I had a really fun, creative night and had cool connections with the guys and the band had a good night that I had this perfect flawless night where I executed everything perfectly. I don't give a fuck about that stuff anymore. I used yeah, well, to really care about it. Now I don't care about it at all. I'd rather be sloppy and maybe I didn't execute something, but if there were some connections in the band because of rhythmic creativity or, or just things that happen that didn't happen even the dynamics. night before. Yeah. yeah dynamics, dynamics, stuff like that. Yeah. That's stuff that, that, that like a pro musician knows that those are the most important things, the creative moments. It's all about being creative, not about showing off. Yeah. So um, once you get past thinking that you have to show off, you can, you can be creative because you're not nervous. That's the whole thing to me, being nervous or not being nervous. Because yep. if you're nervous, you won't be creative and you'll make mistakes. Yep. But if you're not nervous and you're just having a good time, I think one of the things that helps me on stage is, is, is getting the audience on your side so that they know that you feel like they like you and that they're having fun because, you know, you ever stare out in the audience and everybody's like this. And I always go, I see you motherfuckers out there. You guitar yeah, players yeah. just waiting for me to make a mistake. And I'll just yeah. go like, <laughs> You know, yeah. you know here's a, here's a chords out of tune are you happy okay yeah. now i can get to playing some music you know i just make jokes about it you know because yeah. our our telling trump jokes is great way to, <laughs> you know just just to get the audience like in a comedy fun mood and then you feel like they're on your side and you feel like yeah i can have fun now i don't have to worry about them um hating me if i make a mistake right of course, well, there will be guys idea. that hate you when you make mistakes, but it doesn't matter. You know, those aren't yeah, the guys you want to be playing for. Exactly. It doesn't matter. Well, that's a healthy. Or do you ever look out the audience and see one person that's just having the time of their life and and they're just digging everything? They're so happy to be there. That's the yeah. person you should be playing for. Because, yep. yep. you know, that's that. Look at look at them during the night and you'll play better. <laughs> You're right. You're 100 percent right. Because they're just there to have fun. We're, I mean, when it boils down to it, we're just entertainers, man. Like we're, we're not brain surgeons. Nobody's gonna die if we make a mistake. No. No. <laughs> All right. So we already talked about T.O.P., but is there another huge influence that people would be surprised to hear as a big influence on your playing? Well, of course, if I said weather report, nobody would be surprised. So I'm gonna say yeah. Beyonce. Because, ah. because I love Beyonce. I love her. I, I, I think she has really good writers. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot of good pop music, but I, I count her music as being among some of the best tunes because those writers are really good. Like some of those songs are really good songs. And of course she sings the shit out of them. And I love her phrasing and she's such a good phraser. So I listen to her and I love the, timbre of her voice i just i just think she's cool so wow. I, i'm a fan 
I, that'll surprise people, I think. Yeah. 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 All right. That's a good one. All right. Would you rather have a great guitar and a shitty amp or vice versa? <laughs> I'd rather have a shitty guitar and a great amp. Yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. If you got a bad amp, you're just screwed. There's nothing you yep. can do about it. Yep. I'm with you a hundred percent, but it's been split. With our friends, with other guitars, it's been 50-50 down the line. Oh, really? That's interesting. Yeah. 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 I mean, the tone that, you know, when we were talking about before, the, the, the psychology of playing. You know, I read that book by Kenny Werner. Um, oh, yeah. Because, because I'm, I'm always interested in other people's viewpoints of how you view yourself and how you, how you view your own playing and how you get past that critical part that, that that can destroy your night and what i think is so funny is that he talks about listening to your instrument and first of all acknowledging that it's the most beautiful tone you've ever heard and i go this guy is not a fucking guitar player <laughs> it's like nice book dude but you're preaching to the wrong crowd if you're trying to convert guitar players into your way of thinking because the yeah. first thing we think is god this sounds like shit yeah yeah and it's well, like dude, you're trying you to fight the <laughs> comfort is so important to the yeah. to the level of gig that the audience ends up getting you said you don't want to be nervous but you all you also want to be comfortable so right. it's like when you have uh, your sound you, that means the audience is going to get better show because you're comfortable yeah and i i, I say yeah. this a lot of times when i get into gear fights with people you know who will question Oh God! They'll question the pedal choice on my board. Like that pedal sucks. Why don't you use this in, instead? <laughs> and my 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 initial thought is, well, did you enjoy my show? Do you like my music? Oh yeah, it was fucking awesome. Well, you would have enjoyed it a lot less if I had a rat instead of that pedal, because I would have enjoyed the gig less. You right. know, so of course, what matters really of in the course. end. Well, and also, it's not even that you have in your own gear, but the sound of the room changes so much from night to night, which yeah. affects distortion in a particular way, where yeah. one night your sound is like horribly bright and you have to do all, and, and, and another night you can't hear the bass at all. It's just a bunch of low frequency. Like the kind of music that I play, in order to really play it well, you've got to hear each other. So yeah. when we play those big boomy rock rooms, we don't get to be quite as subtle. We don't hear the subtleties of each other's playing. And yeah. usually we, we have better nights when we play rooms where the sound is really clear and we can hear each other well. So yeah. that plays into that, you know, how can you compare a night, how can you compare Monday night to Tuesday night when Monday night we were playing in this beautiful sounding room like Ronnie Scott's in London and the next night we're playing in a basketball court. Yeah, I mean, you, right, right. you can't compare those two nights because every night is different with a different situation. And of course, when you're renting gear, like I have my own yeah. gear when we're on the road in the van, but when we fly, I've got to rent gear. And sometimes, man, I get these trashed out marshals and yeah. speaker cabinets that have been used by heavy metal bands for 10 years. Yeah. Um, and one thing that I've really tried to learn or tried to learn, tried to teach myself is how to get past it, how to have a really shitty tone, but still have a good night and ignore it and sort of how somehow to psychologically, you know, psych myself into thinking that my tone is good when I know it's not right and get past it. And I've done it a couple nights. Like I remember this one night in Italy, I probably had the worst tone I've ever had in my career. And I just 
couldn't believe how bad it sounded to my ears. Like I just play one note and I go, that's the worst tone I think I've ever heard. And yet somehow I pulled it off and I had a really good playing night and I was able to do it. And I'm not always able to do it, but I was pretty proud of myself that night that I, I, I had a good playing night and the band had a good night, despite the fact that my tone fucking sucked ass. <laughs> it's right, right. horrible. So yeah, what are you going right. to do? You just try. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, you got, you know, it, when it, when it all comes down at the end, whether it's a shitty rental amp or not, the gig must go on. Yeah. You know, I would love for Kenny Werner to try to play a gig on a Strat with distortion and then rewrite his book. <laughs> yeah. 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 I don't think he's very familiar with 60 cycle hum at all. No, I don't think he's familiar with guitar players at all. You know, his world, and I don't think he even considers the guitar an instrument. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dude, so you've already said you've been working your butt off during the pandemic and you've shown us some of what you've been working on. What is it that keeps you motivated? Because every time I hear you, you got new shit. And it's obviously that you're working on stuff, you know. And, and maybe it's not as much as you think and, and as much as you want. But you always are. So what, what keeps the fire burning after all this time, you know? I don't know. I think it's just love of music, you know, and love of and wanting to improve and wanting to bring new things to the audience. Because... For me, like I said, the, the, when it becomes a job like that you're going to do nightly and you know that the guys are going to hear you every single night, you really struggle to not play the same thing the same exact way every night. And, and so I have to constantly try to reinvent some things that I do. And, and, or it's more about reinventing, reinventing the way you think. Because sometimes I have a feeling, okay, you know how, I'm sure you do this because everybody does this, but you know how when you solo, you're, you've got solos in a certain tune and you come across something that's really good and you want to keep it because you want to give the audience the best thing. So you end yeah. up doing these little mini compositions inside your solos that are the same every night. Of course, you know? yeah. And, and everybody does it. I do it. And, and I don't know when in the solo it's going to happen. Like say if you've got a chorus and you're playing like, the, okay, the next loop through the changes, you might right, do it. Right. But the band guys, they always know it's going to happen. They don't know when, but it's always going right, to happen right. that I'm going to go into this little composition thing in my solo. And I guess I'm always looking for new ones. Yeah. You know, new, new things that are really good that I can bring into my solos. And some nights I don't play them, some nights I do play them. But I want to have a big arsenal of them so that I yeah. – that, that, uh, that the songs change from night to night and the guys have new stuff to react to. And sometimes I just fly by the seat of my pants and don't know what I'm going to do. And yeah. sometimes that ends up being the best shit, but yeah. It's amazing how much playing with the same guys a lot has an inf influence just on your own improvisation because yeah, it you, does. you want to play different things for them they change what you play and then that becomes a new little hook that you put in that no, solo. Exactly. It only happened because you reacted to something they did, you know? And, and yeah, it, it is, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. That's one of the reasons that I do try to keep people in the band for long periods of time. I'm not a guy that changes up rhythm sections all the time. I like having the same guys because they, they, they know when to lock into something and they know when not to. So they've, yeah. we've got enough experience playing with you that we can almost read each other's minds at times, it seems like. And exactly. that's a fun thing. 
once you get on the road and once you get into it and once you get past the don't fuck up stage, because that's why I hate that's, you know, that's why I don't do one-offs at the baked potato very much because when you, when you do a one-off and you haven't played for a while and you're putting all this music together, the vibe at that first gig is always don't fuck up. That's what it's all about. It's not about being creative. It's just about don't mess the music up. You you know, like I've got to really struggle to remember all these things. Once you get on the road for a week, you don't even think about the music anymore. You just think about being creative and that's the fun part. So I want to get to the fun part. And, and, um, and that's the part we all live for is when something happens that you don't expect and you play stuff that you've never played before. And yeah, I, that that can only happen under the circumstance where number one you're completely relaxed and you're comfortable and you feel like that you're not under any pressure to to impress anyone or, or yeah. do anything like that you're just doing it for the sheer fun of it and yeah. those are the moments that we all live for man you know those yeah. those are really important that, that that's what keeps me motivated to do what yeah. i do well you're literally speaking to my number one biggest frustration in the entire world and it's that i don't get to play with the same guys often enough i'm flying around the world playing with pickup musicians or when i do take guys i'll take them for one tour and we'll get a thing and then i'll never take them everywhere any again in that Uh configuration so Uh normally i'm just every tour every gig is me cueing people thinking about what they can play they only know the songs that i sent them before that tour and it's not just playing you know and yeah that's you're speaking directly to my number one that's that that would be hard for me because then i would be thinking about are things gonna go right yeah exactly and 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 i want to i i guess that's the reason i want to keep the same guys because i want to know i want to have the the security of knowing that even if I screw up, these guys are going to be on it. And they usually really are. And they can carry my sad ass if I screw up. <laughs> and like, I can, I, can, I can make mistakes. I can do this. And they know for them it's comedy. Like, they love it when I fuck up. Like, the more I screw up, the more it is they get to go, don't. And, and it, one thing that I, I, I really suggest to people, like, like take mistakes as comedy not seriously because everybody makes them and if you think they're funny you'll be better off because yeah, yeah. that 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 won't darken your night because i know that i know that enough people have experienced this where you have a night that gets dark and you're so dark on yourself by the middle of the night that it's just a downward spiral it's almost like a yeah. mental disease that enters yeah. your music and when that mental disease enters your music, it spirals down. By the end of the gig, you're just a, a nervous wreck yeah. and you get off stage. And I've had it happen to me enough times where I know that if I keep things light and make fun of the things that I do wrong and think they're funny, then I don't get bummed out and I'm ready to try again on the next song or the next few bars and try to make something cool happen because I refuse to let myself go to that dark place. Oh, where, yeah. Oh, yeah. where, you know, that that's every musician's, I, not just musicians, but can you imagine playing football or basketball in front yeah. of literally hundreds of thousands of people in your, in, and are, I don't know how big are stadiums. Maybe it's not hundreds of thousands. Maybe it's well, tens of thousands. TV, millions. I mean. Yeah, you're right. It's, I forgot about the TV audience. It's millions. So, so, yeah. And you're under such pressure. 
Like, yeah, you take that shot, a big shot, and miss it the first time, and now you just shrink away from it for the rest of your career? What would yeah. happen if, if Jordan or Kobe did that? You know what I mean? Like, come on. Dude, did you, you know? see the did you see the 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 Raiders game where the poor field goal guy missed four kicks in a row and yeah. then he won the game with the final kick? I was yeah. thanking the Lord that yeah. <laughs> if, if there is and that one, guy's I'm a Hall sure of Famer. I know. But yeah. like to have four misses like that, easy yeah. misses, and then finally to get the opportunity to come back and win the game with a kick, I felt yep. so good for him because he was gonna be he was gonna walk away from that game the most miserable human being on the planet if he hadn't had a chance to redeem himself with yep. that kick. You're right. And you're right. That's how I feel sometimes on stage. It's like, well, maybe I screwed this up and screwed this up, but I kept a good attitude and I redeemed myself because I played some good stuff. Whereas if oh, I didn't just... have that attitude, I would have just spiraled all down and the whole gig would have been a nightmare. Yeah. So, but that's, you know, that's maturity too. I mean, you, you grew into that, you know, yeah. I guess, but you know, Scott Kinsey said one thing. He said, attitude is the whole ball game. Yeah. It's it's not about the notes. It's about the attitude. Because I've seen these guys like Steve Tavalloni play a C sharp on a C major seven chord, and it sounds like gold because he <laughs> knows how to sell it. Yeah. You know, he has the he has the he he has the experience and he has the 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 drive and he has the knowledge and the phrasing knowledge to sell that note like it was the most golden note, even it's the most wrong note in the whole world. He knows yeah. where to put it and how to sell it, how to be confident about it. It's his attitude that makes that note sound good. Wow. And yeah, that's yeah. what it's about. It's about the yeah, attitude yeah. where if yep. you have the right attitude, you can get away with murder and you can play anything yeah. you want and make it sound good. If your attitude is in the right place. Yeah, you're right, man. A hundred percent. All right. Number 10, dude. So where do you want to be? in five years do you just want to keep keeping on the same path or is there is there another goal that you know no, somewhere you're going well you know i wonder about that myself because i've done now let's see one two three four guitar based non-keyboard based albums uh-huh because i've had this thing with keyboard players my career started working with keyboard players Right. And I've worked with keyboard players for my whole career. My track on an album has always been one track. It's the guitar. <laughs> it's the guitar track. You yeah. play the guitar track. Now I'm doing these records where I'm layering 100 guitars on top of each other and doing that thing. And right. now People Mover is my fourth album. Um, guitar. Oh, well, actually, if you count Dog Party and Tour Down House, one, two, I guess all my. No. Sorry, because Tordon House had keyboards on it on a few things here and there. But I'd say Well to the Bone and, and Vibe Station and People Mover are like trio guitar records where the guitar is layered, uh -huh. you know, inspired by people like Jimmy Page, inspired uh -huh. by people like Mike Landau, who's so good yeah. at doing it, yeah. doing those layered guitar records. I'm, I don't know what to do next. If I should do another guitar layered record or should I bring keyboards back into the mix or maybe a horn player or something like that and change it up a little bit. I don't know. You know, that's something that I have to decide for myself because financially I can't afford to take a fourth person on the road. 
Right. And it's got to be trio or you don't make any money on the road. I mean, quartets, Jesus, the difference yep. between taking a quartet on the road and a trio on the road is like astronomical when it comes to the money. Uh, you, it's, you, yeah, it's you bring home so much more more money when you're playing trio yeah. so i don't want to write music on a record that i can't reproduce so probably more than likely what will happen is i'll do another guitar trio record but but right. that's the kind of stuff i think about is mm -hmm. or i thought maybe you know it would be really fun doing a duet album with kinsey with no bass and drums so that would be cool and just and you could take you know, home even more money if you toured like yeah, that just tour me and kinsey you know the two scots and yeah. and just have some, you know because i know we could make some amazing music together with all his oh, sounds and course. all yeah. my pedals and stuff we could make some soundscape shit happen and we could you know make some swing happen and some funk i'm sure it would be fun so yeah. i think about that kind of stuff just little directional changes that's one of the reasons i I really respect John, you know, McLaughlin because he's done so many different styles of projects, you know, from Mahavishnu Orchestra to the big, big band orchestra version to uh -huh. Shakti to all yeah. his different bands. And every time he does a, does a project, it's a completely different thing. And I, and, yeah. and it's so cool, you know, I, and not only is it completely different, you still are a hundred percent clear. That's him. And yeah. it's his voice in well, there, he's so amazing. He's a legend, man. He's one of my heroes for sure. If I if I had to think of a guitar hero, he would be the guy. Because oh, I gotta tell you a funny story. Um, um he came to see me play in Nice and we like to hang out. Right. And uh and some guy comes up to me. I'm talking to John just right off the stage, and some guy comes up and asks me for my autograph. And I was just like, dude, do, do you know who this is? I was pointing at John. I mean, do you know who this is and the guy looked at john and he didn't know who it was yeah. and i'm going like i just can't somehow press the pin to the paper because i feel like such an idiot signing an autograph in front of john mclaughlin and john said just sign the fucking thing and let's go yeah. <laughs> what's funny man i i've been in that i've seen him around in in those situations when it wasn't his gig and he somehow he does kind of skate by without some people. It's like he's yeah. he looks like a the, a handsome Formula One driver. He does. He looks like an actor or something, I mean? right? Yeah. He does. He does. Right. Yeah. But he's got that thing, man. And he's yeah. and he's a funny guy. You know, you think that he's going to be a real serious cat, but you know, we were he was showing us a video of uh, what they were watching on the road, and it was uh, some ping pong with Bruce Lee playing ping pong. And I was going, let me show you what we've been watching on the road. It was a turtle fucking a shoe and making these weird noises. <laughs> and he and I showed him the video and he said, oh, shit, this is way better. <laughs> oh, God, he's a cool guy, man. But I've always I've always really respected his his what he's brought to the music world because it's so innovative and he he yeah. he, he came with a whole new thing that, that no one had ever done before and a lot of guys have done that and that's something that really gains kind of like blows me away when someone comes out with something that no one has ever done and yeah. Mahavishnu Orchestra when they came out who had ever heard anything like that before no it didn't exist yeah no when i heard birds of fire for the first time i just went what the fuck and i i don't even know if i liked it i thought it scared me actually but then it became one of my favorite records that i, yeah. I really like a lot amazing wow all right so we made it to the end of the 10 questions so um members if you haven't yet 
hit join, become a member, because we're going to do a little turn two video where we teach you two licks. But, dude, it's just I can't thank you enough for doing this, man. You're Josh, it was a, a pleasure, man. Thank you so much. Thanks for having oh, me. Dude. Hopefully when life gets back to normal, we can, like, actually hang and go to salsa and beer, man. You know what? I had so much fun doing that gig with you and, and, and JT and, and yeah. Travis. Yeah, we I'd love do to again. do that again because that was yeah. a blast, man. I had yeah, so we, much fun. Yeah, and, we definitely have to do that again. You know, you know who blew me away? JT. Not that oh, you yeah. didn't blow me away because you were playing your ass off as always. But JT, this is a guy who has played with Alan Holsworth, who has played the most difficult, syncopated, odd meter music, who uh -huh. can play the craziest shit in the world on the drums. And he sounded like a Motown drummer that that night he yeah. did not go into one bit of his jazz vocabulary he yeah. sounded like he was the drummer at muscle shoals studios like yeah. Yeah. Uh, somebody that can play blues and funk that authentically and just keep it so perfectly simple and feeling so great that's a guy that is he's a rare bird man he is man i love <clears throat> i love jt and every JT's time i play the best. with him Every time I play with him, it's like again I'm reminded, wow, man, Joel's really special, man. What a what a fucking player. And he's, he is. he's obviously such he a great is. guy, too. Uh he's wonderful. And 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 I played a gig um right before the pandemic yeah. with him and Darren Johnson. Oh, I and, was there. Um, I was there. Oh yeah, you you were there at that at that gig. And we had fun and it was really fun to play J JT, and that was more his element fusion and yeah. where he yeah. gets to play all his stuff, you know, but what a great drummer, man. But what impressed me that night was that he's able to just really go to a blues gig and play the blues, man. Not well, like, it was funny. Not. The first time I called him for a gig, I was I didn't know, you know, what would happen on the blues, you know. And we were playing a slow blues, and he did just instinctually, I didn't call for them. He did some, like, stops and hits, kind of like in the, the way B.B. King does on the song It's My Own Fault on Live at the Regal. And I didn't ask for them or anything. He just kind of – it made me realize, okay, he, he know he's listened. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. You know that he's, he's steeped in that music as well as he is in jazz and fusion. Yeah. And I never knew that about Joel. I thought he was uh, – I thought I'm going to go do a blues gig with Joel Taylor on drums, and it blew me away <laughs> yeah. that he just fit like a glove. In that yeah. music, I imagine that guy can play anything he wants to play. He's yeah. so, he's so good. But I had a blast playing with you, man. You were well, you were burning, and you, I was like looking over and going, "Oh shit!" Oh, man. That was a well, guitar lesson, man. That's the way I always feel when I hear you play. But yeah, we'll do we'll we'll do it again mm -hmm. soon, and there will be links to all things Scott Henderson in the description of this video. But hang on, Scott, and we'll do the next little thing. But thank you, everybody, for watching.